Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. And fourth-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Joshua. How's it going, Dr. Parks? The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is intended to re- not is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Boy, that would give it a different meaning <laughs> if I said it is intended to replace <laughs> assessment and treatment. Okay, so let's get back on track. Does that mean we're getting paid? <laughs> That's right. What's my what's your, what's your hourly on that? <laughs> this episode, four doctors. Ta- four. You have hired four doctors. That's times four. Big, it's going to be a what, big rate. Is there is there precedent? Has that ever been? Has there been a team of psychiatric and psychological oh, treatment professionals on one teams. person? But at the same time, or as a tag team, I feel like they probably do a lot of. They see multiple people. I kind of feel that. But has there ever been like a team of people? that address one person at the same time though? Yeah. I mean, they also probably see other, but they, there's like a multitude of people on one patient in like the state hospital that often, that often happens. That's true. At the state hospital, you can do a forensics consult. Mm -hmm. Um, You can do a psychopharmacology consult. You could have like three, four doctors seeing the same patient. Okay. Yes. Yes. And if something bad happens, you can get the chief of staff involved. Oh. Okay. <laughs> All right. Hold on. Do. You're not. You're not saying my meaning here. Uh, I am. I'm just being annoyed. <laughs> I must. If you know, in your world, would it be? Is it possible to have three psychoanalysts analyzing someone at the same time? Have you ever heard of such a thing? Oh God. Uh, no, I don't think so. No. Oh, that sounds God. brutal. That would take <sighs> someone's whole day and week. And it, it feels like it would be you against know, the process. The <laughs> you know? Yeah. It seems like it might be. Well. I don't know. Would there be an ethical thing? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, There's too I many transferences. Yeah. It'd be very, it, there wouldn't be a research base to support it. That's right. one thing I would see. All right. Sorry. Uh, sorry, folks. We're just thinking out loud. Um, okay. Back, back on track. I don't know why this particular episode is getting off track. Back on track. To do this, we are so pleased to have join us once again, Dr. Fong Vo. Dr. Vo is a first-year psychiatry resident, soon to be a second year with a master's from UCLA before starting medical school in biology, evolutionary medicine, with an emphasis on evolutionary theories of depression and anxiety. She's currently interested in child and adolescent psychiatry, cultural psychiatry, and working with immigrants and refugees. Dr. Vo, thank you for joining us again on Let's Get Psyched. Hello, thanks for having me again. Now, I'm gonna ask you just a little bit of a question because we're going into the, we're gonna sink our teeth into the controversies around evolutionary medicine and psychology. Um, why did you cho- choose this for your lot in life? <laughs> why did it's you spend time studying so What's up? The, the real answer or the uh, answer oh. that I, I like afterwards? <laughs> this is the second episode. We're casual. You can call us by our first name. The real answer was because evolutionary medicine was an entirely new master's program at UCLA. It was already a minor but uh, oh, wow. basically mm. I got the education for free and then I got hired as a TA for it. Uh, so I did oh, it during wow. my gap year um, while I was interviewing for med school. I don't think that's technically a gap year then. 
that's <laughs> your definition of a gap year. Well, well yeah, I guess. You were working. I mean, well, I mean, but I didn't, like, I didn't, what's the word? I didn't go straight from undergrad into medicine, but I kind right, of sure. stayed in between. It uh, violated was... the hegemony of medicine. So it's a gap year <laughs> in that way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, but it was just another degree that I was really interested in. Um, and I took a class that just kind of brought it forth. And then I was actually interested in psychiatry from it and went into medical school uh, thinking that I was going to do psychiatry. And lo and behold, I came back to it. Mm. What part caught your eye for psychiatry specifically? It was really learning more about depression and things like that. I also mm. kind of have like a family history that was made it a lot more interesting I kind of started as an art major and then worked my way through various majors and then fell in love with psychology and then decided to do this. Um, I also like really liked genetics. So I was TAing for genetics as well. Mm -hmm. And this kind of meshed a bunch of different interests together. Wow. Yeah. It gave you quite a breadth of understanding for sure to tackle this. It's very controversial. This this area. Now that you're, you know, training in psychiatry what do you think about what you learned in your master's there there's a lot that's interesting that I'm still trying to figure out how to utilize in my own kind of future practice that I think gives me a different perspective that other folks might not have um but some of it's also a little bit it feels a little bit more woo-woo now. Uh, so for example, like one of the big components of it was really discussing the monoamine hypothesis and kind of <laughs> seeing how that's been debunked in medical school a little bit and in practice really uh, broadens their horizon and really shows me just how multifactorial all of this is, which kind of makes it so much more exciting because I'm a giant nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's- What's one of the ways you said that you're trying to figure out how you could apply it to your clinical practice? Has anything come up for you and how how that would work? Yeah, I think about it a lot. And I think in the last episode, we definitely talked about how some kids might get depressed after bullying and things like that. Um, A component that I had brought up when I was doing one of my sub-internships in an adolescent unit was actually to work with them to find a sphere and them, I mean, like patients and their parents to help them find a sphere where they can either be a little bit more comfortable or be kind of in the middle of the herd rather than the bottom of the rung to Mm. kind of help them feel less, um, just less down about themselves. And I think, I think of like how nowadays a lot of parents might, uh, eh, before or against participation trophies, And I personally am not super excited about specifically participation trophies, but I am uh, more willing to talk to parents about putting them into different avenues to really figure out where their strengths are. And then that way, it also helps these kids with that social hierarchy as well. And it's that whole idea, like if you ask a fish how to climb a tree, good luck kind of thing. And a lot of these kids, when they come to you, they're kind of that fish trying, like forced into climbing a tree, like whether they like it or not, and trying to put them into different avenues to see where they can thrive. I totally agree. I talk about the same thing with my parents, not my parents, but my patient's parents. (laughs) (laughs) 
that Mom, dad stop giving me trophies <laughs> <laughs> that um you've got to try different things the kids have to try different things try different groups of you know social groups different activities um to gain find a, a place where they feel comfortable and can have success and then gain that self-confidence, um, which can set them up for success in the next level and the next level. Yeah, that is, that is so important. And also just to find something that motivates them, that makes them passionate about being around. Something on the same lines of what Joshua was asking, oh, uh, is do you feel like clinicians should get a foundation in the evolutionary basis of mental disorders, uh, um, clinical conditions and phenomenon to, to inform their practice and make them more effective practitioners? I think it would be interesting. It's <laughs> <laughs> not an endorsement. Also, <laughs> Very well, delicately I, handled. Well done. Well, I also realize that it's not everybody's cup of tea and there's already so much to study and so much that's unknown about psychiatry that I feel like it would be kind of mean to add on just another thing to learn, <laughs> especially in on the very, very long road into medicine. I think it should be one of those like not required classes, but hey, come check it out if you're interested. And this is a component that you can use to, uh, I guess, light your way a little bit. Um, on one of the many mysteries of psychiatry. Here's a question on that note. So we had, we had briefly spoken about in the intershow period, sort of the, maybe some of our gripes with evolutionary psychology and how it maybe has been abused by certain people to, to explain what we would consider, you know, bad behavior sometimes. Uh, the example that came to mind is like men saying, well, I'm, you know, evolutionarily I'm supposed to have many mates. I'm supposed to increase my reproductive success. So that's why I cheated on you, honey. And it's like, <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty soft in terms of an explanation, but you know, you're saying it would be an interesting thing for clinicians. What for you would be, okay. If this was like a huge development within evolutionary psychiatry, like, okay, we got this new theory or we got this new piece of data would make it worth it for you to be like, yeah, no, we should, we should actually study this. I want to say how big of a phenomenon it becomes. And I only say that because my more recent interest has been the development of antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder within children and why mm -hmm. that has become something that tends to be seen a little bit more frequently or has continued to propagate and has real social consequences. But I think that might just be like my own salience network telling me that this is important because I see it more often. <laughs> so if there was like a good explanation for that? <laughs> I don't know, but I have heard that theoretically um, behaviors of antisocial personality and narcissistic personality disorder could have been selected in theory to create leaders in certain social groups that can basically mm -hmm. make morally ambiguous decisions for the better <laughs> of either themselves or their group. Uh, I neither reject nor endorse this idea, but I've heard it around and I don't know what to make of it, but it would be interesting to learn more about. That's a fascinating idea that social systems 
basically selected for people who, if I'm understanding what you're saying, right, selected for people for whom morality is more of a suggestion and that those people could make choices that other people within the system maybe couldn't. Is that? Yes, it is an idea that is floating around. Hmm. And then there's, it kind of goes with your, uh, your system that you mentioned earlier, the, the man that like, ah, oh, you know, I cheated or whoever I cheated on you because I'm propagating. And the idea is, well, if you don't feel guilty about that, then yeah, you can continue to go ahead and propagate and all of that. Hmm. So is this how a lot of evolutionary uh, psych- psychological and psychi- psychiatric theories go is that they're, they're kind of, they run the gamut. There's a lot of different ones. Like, yeah, uh, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like, I mean, cause I, that, that last, that one about the uh, antisocial people, that almost has a, they're helping the group survive rather than I kind of just the common sense idea of an antisocial person is, oh, so they're just willing to kill people for resources. <laughs> they'll just go over and they'll just murder you in your sleep and then they'll just grab your stuff and that's how they survive. And that's how but they for a nation, a, a nation that has, you know, vested interest in protecting itself against other nations certainly would want people who have that capability, right? Right. I see the reasoning. I feel, I feel everyone is very nervous to hop on, hop on the board here and maybe follow so it down dark. the line. It's dark. Well, it's controversial. I, yeah. It's definitely controversial. And it's probably one of the reasons why I, I like this like thought game that we're playing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we see it in other, other forms of social media, like zombie apocalypse shows that really show what personalities may or may not thrive in an apocalypse. And it's a curious uh, position to look at. Now, um, you know, when you're, um, uh, how is this studied? That maybe that's, I uh, kind of feeling tension on this uh, uh, kind of at, at this moment is because I feel like we're, we're <laughs> this is, is this what happens? It's a similar thing that happens when you're with your evolutionary medicine friends. Where <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of speculation. <laughs> 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 Every time you grab an extra olive, you're like, yeah, that was probably just you and that evolutionary desire to grab stuff. And so, I mean, it's a lot of speculation, but how would you, but where's the hard science that actually can move toward actual solid evidence? And, 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 and it, or do you have like a, an example of no, this is solid. It was studied in this way, and this is how we uh, we we study it, and this is what we have come up with, and this is very this is very close to as, as hard of a quote fact as we have in evolutionary medicine. Uh, you're not talking about specifically like antisocial and narcissistic that I just mentioned. Any, right? Anything, yeah. I'm giving you a chance to defend your your uh, field. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, I got a master's. I'm not like a PhD and I am not like in no means the, the end all be all to this topic. But I mean, kind of jumping back to depression and the monoamine hypothesis and the idea that the more serotonin you have, the higher in social hierarchy you can become. I mean, they have had stepwise function uh, results um, in animals where they have given them fluoxetine. Um, which is an SSRI, as many folks know, uh, increases the serotonin levels. And they've seen that the, it would increase motivation, but also help uh, animals actually move up in the social hierarchy. And this also includes fish as well. 
And then they studied the opposite, uh, where they would also give high-ranking fish uh, ciproheptadine, which would kind of block the serotonin and would notice that they decreased in ranks. So that's probably the most correlative that I can pull out uh, from my little hat of theories here and theories and hypotheses. And I want to emphasize that because it's very difficult to to, to prove, but I mean, that's where hey, I'm at. Also, we can't really like get on our high horse here. I mean, we did an episode in our first 100 episodes on debunked studies, right? <laughs> Remember we did a, an episode talking oh, about yeah, debunked studies in um, psychology. It's just the fact is these things are hard to, to put a finger on. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're joined by Dr. Fong Vo. And we're talking about the controversial nature of evolutionary medicine and psychiatry. Uh, Tosha, I kind of interrupted you. Yeah. So I guess I'm saying, like, I think it's important to keep that in mind whenever we're thinking about applications. So Fong, what are the proposed applications of these theories within medicine, or if we want to focus on psychiatry, psychiatry? Really, there's not a whole lot. Um, One of the ones I mentioned earlier is having people explore different social spheres and kind of adding to their social hierarchy. Right. It kind of helps with like an emphasis on like cognitive behavioral therapy, as well as uh, a way of offering solutions and behaviors to social problems. And that would kind of counteract things like the analytic rumination hypothesis, which we've all kind of already been doing. It's just an added layer to maybe our understanding of why it might be helpful. So those are a couple of ones that generally come to mind. Um, some other ones, and we didn't really talk about it a whole lot, but one of the theories that was helpful is like a host defense system hypothesis, where if your body feels sick, then it's going to withdraw. And this uh, ties a little bit more to like inflammation and the brain gut axis. And if you can kind of trick your body into feeling healthier, then that helps combat some of these depressive symptoms. So that's why exercise releasing endorphins reminds your body that, hey, maybe it's not as sick as we, we feel that it is. So maybe we can participate in more uh, social interactions. And it's kind of like a way of fighting our body, trying to trick us into retreating. Other things include decreased processed foods uh, that can cause inflammation and your body literally feeling sick. Mm. Now, this is actually uh, something that I feel like would be of value to the clinician is the idea of these perspective changes that evolutionary medicine and psychiatry can um, spark in people's minds. It it almost can, uh, folks will come in therapy and feel that they're abnormal, that they're doing things wrong, that they should, that they're different in some way. But if you're able to share a perspective where there could be maybe even an adaptive function, but it's, it's not fitting you at this particular time in your life. And so then you can kind of be validating of themselves as a person. They're not doing anything unusual or abnormal, but I, I could see that used in cognitive behavioral therapy as perspective change and cognitive, cognitive restructuring. Mm. I think even to dovetail onto that, the, the thing that just kind of occurred to me was that this could potentially also be very useful in an explanatory capacity for our patients. I mean, 
I don't know how many times I've told my patient, well, the problem is that there's too little serotonin in here, what's called a synaptic cleft. And then we're trying to increase that amount of serotonin. Um, but one of the issues that I've run into in doing that is that um, people who are really wedded to that idea will end up having a very biological understanding of themselves. And they're like, well, I just, I just have a chemical imbalance and that's my problem. And it makes the, the conversation of, well, well, you know, uh, exercise, eating right, getting out of abusive situations, um, or, you know, even from everyone knows my heart belongs to psychoanalysis, but even from a psychoanalytic or psychodynamic perspective, there are conflicts that exist that perhaps part of why somebody is sad is that they're uh, living inauthentically uh, in, in accordance with like their environment or whatever. And this creates a conflict that results in anxiety, X, Y, and Z. If you had something evolutionarily to say, well, you know, we think that we developed as as you know, higher primates or whatever in this capacity. And when this thing deviates, this is what can happen. It might offer a, a, a far more robust approach in terms of explanatory power towards patients to explain like, so then your treatment could be, you know, become more involved with the group or something, whatever, whatever we end up finding out is true. I think that that could be a really powerful tool for people to understand themselves. Um, and we can aid in that. Yeah, I think like from what Fong has said, it sounds like is studying evolutionary psychiatry necessarily the end all be all? No, <laughs> but um, it does add some details to the picture that we could consider at least. How do you respond to when people want to excuse their behavior. I know, I know, Joshua kind of brought this up a little bit. But how do you respond when the people kind of excuse their behavior or, or their, their group or uh, because in evolutionary terms, and it's almost a rationalization or a justification. What, what is it because, and maybe they, there, there has been a lot of theoretical and hypothetical speculation about why people do things and, and, and why they do bad things. But so what do you do? How do you answer the, how do you respond to that? As a clinician, as a, or as a theorist. There are a few people that have brought up to me like, well, this is my genetics or something like that. But generally I frame it as this is your predisposition for a certain way of living your life. And these are ways to kind of move past this. So if you like don't want to feel bad or things like that, then these are kind of choices that you can make. Uh, it's a little bit harder to give an example in psychiatry, but I think one of the things that I've talked about with some of my patients, particularly diabetic patients, maybe from specific backgrounds, I kind of think of it evolutionarily as, well, your body's learned to kind of store fats in a specific way and uh, bring out sugars in a specific way to prevent you from starvation in times of famine. And that's helped your ancestors uh, survive. But the double-edged sword of that is, now, when you're in a system of abundance, then you're predisposed to diabetes. And here are kind of the consequences of the diabetes if, you know, it kind of continues. Now, it's your choice to make that decision of whether or not you want to continue on this projected pathway, or, um, or we can talk about how to kind of jump off that pathway. And it's, it's kind of hard to answer people when they're not at the position to make changes, but I think of it more as a predisposition rather than a, this is the way that I am. 
Now that we're talking about evolutionary theories on psychiatry, it actually reminds me of one of our previous episodes uh, called Anxiety is Your Friend. Remember that episode we did? I think we were kind of looking at anxiety through an evolutionary lens there because we were looking at how is anxiety adaptive. I want to ask you a question about that because you you say in your intro that also you're familiar with theories of uh, evolutionary theories regarding anxiety. How specific does it get it? Like what, what is the evolutionary benefit of a panic attack? I don't know how many of you folks out there, listeners have had a panic attack. It's terrible. It's ridiculous. And it's terrible. How is, how am I benefiting when I have a panic attack or a person has a panic attack? Does it get that, does it get that uh, 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 small and, and identifiable or do you just talk about anxiety in general? I haven't run into that specific example but my understanding and a lot of people can really resonate is anxiety is a hypervigilant state and it's your body telling you that something is wrong and something needs to be fixed immediately. Stop what you're doing and do that. So maybe if you're having a panic attack and an impending sense of doom, maybe that's your body catching a whiff of something that's going to either attack you or really lead to your doom within the next few minutes. And if you're unwilling to pay attention to it in other emotional uh, confines, then maybe the panic attack is the only thing that will get your attention. I don't know, though. So what I've read about uh, panic attacks from, I'm thinking now, an evolutionary lens again, which I had I wasn't realizing, but um, that the panic, ref- panic attack reflects the fight or flight mode system that operates within us that has developed over time, right, to protect us, like Fong was saying. However, panic attacks are disorders of that mode because they're getting their lines crossed because they're seeing something as a danger that isn't actually the saber-toothed tiger, right? And then you're, you're triggering that innate fight or flight response for the wrong thing. So, it's not necessarily that not necessarily that panic attacks are adaptive, but they come from an adaptation, potentially uh, a disorder in one of our adaptations. So you're getting mixed up about what to be scared of or what to uh, get what action to take. It's just you're just getting this response, but then there's nothing around. So it just kind of sits and stews in your body or something like that. That our bodies are equipped to handle an emergency situation with either a fight or flight response, but our bodies are reacting to something in a haywired fashion. And then we just start continually reacting to that thing. Um, That's what I've read about panic attacks. I, I, and that's the basis. I think I remember of you telling me that at some point. Oh yeah, and that's the, the basis. I don't know if it was on a show or not. That's Sorry, the basis I, of CBT for anxiety. Is you know one of the things you teach in, in CBT for anxiety. At least that's what I read, but I don't know. I'm not the expert. Now I will regularly tell people that um, they are perhaps overutilizing anxiety as a motivator. And that they have become deeply entrenched in this as a habit. That that they the only thing, only reason they do things is because there's deadline and there's just an, an incredibly scary thought about failing and dropping out of school and being homeless and penniless and things like that. And that if it, it becomes such a powerful motivator, you continue to rely on it too much. And then I but how, how, I never asked you to, and and you too, Fong, about what are your thoughts about that? Does that fit in an evolutionary framework or? 
Go ahead, Josh. I, I was just going to say, it reminded me of what you shared, Fong, about the social hierarchy and sort of, or um, the, the being in the sort of lower ranked position in, in certain settings was an advantage because you have to keep fighting all the time. Um, that seems like an, a really creative way to use sort of a lower pivotal point to conserve energy in the same way that having using anxiety to accomplish tasks is like, well, I have this anxiety. I can get it to do things for me. And I think humans have uh, all kinds of different ways that we've developed to use things that are maladaptive uh, to serve us. Definitely. In my studies, depression and anxiety have basically been two sides of the exact same coin. Um, And I I don't have to get into this um, about like serotonin levels and increasing that will increase anxiety levels. But if you think about being at the top of the food chain and being constantly aware of maybe falling down the food chain or losing your position, and you're going to have a lot of anxiety and that provokes hypervigilance. And it can also provoke symptoms like insomnia where it's better to survive if I'm not going to, if I know that I'm going to be awake to not be attacked in my sleep and get taken from my position and things like that. So very similar to what everybody else has said, it, it can be a maladaptive process to, um, to defense, uh, our general uh, sympathetic fight or flight and defense mechanisms. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about the controversial nature of evolutionary medicine and psychiatry with our special guest, Dr. Fong Vo. Dr. Vo, Fong, thank you for joining us on this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Thanks for having me. And thank you also to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Amaguchi and Joshua Poole. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at Get Psyched on KUCR at gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy an extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. You know, I was going to ask um, a question that I, I didn't get to ask. I was thinking about it. Is, um, do, do evolutionary psychiatry or people in evolutionary medicine and psychiatry, when they come up with these theories or test these theories, do they then go the next step? And so, therefore, because we know the a deeper understanding of the etiology of some of these things therefore this implies treatment of blah 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 do they go with that or do they let that they hand that off to clinical folks i have actually never been able to really see a whole lot of application stuff uh what i've mentioned about cpt and other things is stuff that i've kind of piecemealed from multiple sources this is extremely new i think even recently they just some fo- some psychiatrists in Canada finally just created like a society for evolutionary psychiatry specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it's just branches of um, evolutionary psychology. So I, I don't, I haven't seen a lot of specific clinical applications within the books that I've read, but if anybody is interested in more like neurobiological mechanisms, there's a book by, Daniel Lieberman that I've been reading through and I absolutely love. And it talks about the default network um, and how all of everything that we've talked about, depression and anxiety and all these things are also fueled by the default network. Mm. And I'm wondering how much of recent psychedelic research can be tied into that because you're essentially resetting the default network and the salient system. But that's, that's a complete aside.
But if you guys are interested, I can send you um, that book. I have it somewhere yeah. in my shelf. What's the name of that called, one? I think it's called Social by someone Lieberman. I can't remember if it was Daniel Lieberman or let me find it on Google right now. Yeah, I'd appreciate that. Mm-hmm. It's very fascinating. Here it is. Social, why our brains are wired to connect. And it's by Matthew D. Lieberman. And this is, he's an evolutionary psychologist uh, that mostly studies uh, neurobiological. And, and a lot of his examples are like fMRI-based uh, experiments, which is really, really interesting. It kind of talks, it kind of goes into some of the theories that we've talked about, not by name, but like one example is specifically creating a computer algorithm and having someone play a game of catch between three people, but it's actually two computer simulations. And then the computer simulations will stop passing a ball to the player and like the default network and the dorsal anterior cingulate gyrus uh, will flash like an alarm system and like people feel emotionally left out and just like terrible. And it's it's all like, it's all uh, based on like, well, what, what do these parts of the brain, what are they used for? And part of it hypothesizes that the default network, it's called the default network because it's always on. So when you're not processing like math and specific uh, other technical things, your brain defaults into where you are in social standing. Hmm. That is an interesting take on the default mode network that I have, that I have not. uh, So Matthew Lieberman, I'm going to look this up. And that was like it, a big chapter in it. And there's more that I just don't remember. Okay. That concludes our extended portion of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Thank you for your Because time. I need to go to sleep. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll Air stop boundaries. recording. <laughs>